you are tuned in to the Bible is Lit podcast. So odds are, if you're listening to this, uh, you're one of my students. You heard about the course or you're a former student. If you're just listening for general interest, that is awesome also because we decided to put it on this platform, both as a resource for students in the class, but also just for the general public. If it is your first time listening, we're not as much into arguing theology, uh, the right and the wrong and the belief systems that we hold. Personally, what we're doing is we're trying to look at the Bible through a literary lens How does the Bible stack up and stand as a work of literature? How does the Bible stand up to various aspects of literary criticism? And then we're looking at archetypes, patterns, motifs, symbolism that run throughout the Bible story, how it applies to the ancient cultures uh, that were existent next and at the time, but also how these stories continue to impact us today. And just trigger warning or trigger alert, this could challenge your current belief systems. This could confirm your current belief systems. This also could just expand how you read and perceive the world around you. And that is the whole point. So to me, the stories speak for themselves. And if we get to understand them in more depth, we understand ourselves in more depth and we understand the world and the people around us with greater depth and greater clarity. After all, that is the whole point of being human, is it not? So thank you for listening. If this is your first time, uh, we're going to get into today's topic. This is part of the twins unit or twin stories that we are going through. This is the first one and we, I'm calling these or we're calling these twin stories. You could also look at it in terms of sibling rivalries. Now, twin stories run all throughout the Bible. If you want and ancient literature, and even um, we expanded into modern culture, pop culture, and different mythological and literary traditions. We even see this thing play out in the world around us in real time to a degree. And when we see that, right, of course, that's what we call archetypes. So if you want more information on like just how these function in a background sense, we did an episode called Twin Stories Background. Go back and listen to that, and that will lay more of a foundation. Today, we are getting into our first twin story of this unit, and that, of course, is Cain and Abel. We want to start here because it is the first tale we have of siblings in the Bible, and, of course, the first tale we have of siblings in the Bible results in a murder. And so it establishes a pattern, a mode, or a motif that gets told, replayed, and reinterpreted throughout the Bible story and in other cultures. You know, so a key thing, and I think this holds up, it's kind of a matter of opinion of my own, but there are lots of other people who study this stuff and will confirm it that the first six chapters of the Bible, if you read the Bible and then in this, we're talking about Genesis, the first six chapters of the Hebrew Bible, the Torah, which is the same as the first six chapters of the Christian Bible. Um, the first six chapters of Genesis, 
frame the story or create a framework through which the whole remainder of the Bible story is told, and that is whether you just take the Jewish Bible, the Tanakh, or you read the whole Christian Bible, which includes the New Testament, these first six chapters frame and create the playing field through which all this other stuff happens. And so these first six chapters of the Bible are really, really important, and they're really, really deep, and they're also some of the oldest, and so in their depth, in complexity, there's simplicity. So those of you who are reading who are like, um, these are kind of boring, I know this, like do not sleep on the supposed simplicity. That's part of the artistry and how these stories are framed and how these stories were composed um, and then some of y'all might ask, well, if you're saying the authors composed, composed these with intent, with craft, with precision in mind, what does that tell us about God being inspired or them hearing from God? And we could do a whole deep dive on this in a podcast, but just to address that question before we move forward, um, the ancient notion of receiving inspiration from God, receiving communication from God was very much different than our Western minds conceive of it of. Our Western mind kind of conceives of it as, oh, God was speaking directly to people. Now, you have some instances of that in the Old Testament, but writing something down through inspiration of God was more of this knowing that God made you or made a person as an image of God, and then as an image bearer of God, you actually contain the presence of the deity. And so there's this interplay between, was it literally word for word God speaking through these authors, or was it authors versed in this tradition, understanding this notion of the image of God, and then writing from that place? Again, that's where the middling space where life happens, where we can hash these things out, read these stories, dig more, and kind of figure it out for ourselves. In order to read these texts, though, you have to be comfortable being uncomfortable and not having everything tied up into a neat little bow. That is the point and the purpose of wisdom literature, which is the tradition these stories come out of. So without further ado... Let's get into this story of Cain and Abel. So we're starting in Genesis 4, and our source text for this um, lesson will be Genesis 4. We're looking at verses 1 through 18. So what I'm going to do, I'm going to read through all the verses, and then we'll go back through, break them down, and then bring in a couple uh, questions for application. So Genesis 4, and I am reading through the, from the Jewish Publication Society translation of Genesis. Um, so in Genesis 4, verse 1, Now the man knew his wife Eve, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gained a male child with the help of the Lord. She then bore his brother Abel. Abel became a keeper of sheep, and Cain became a tiller of the soil. In the course of time, Cain brought an offering to the Lord from the fruit of the soil, and Abel, for his part, brought the choicest of the firstlings of his flock. The Lord paid heed to Abel and his offering, but to Cain and his offering he paid no heed. Cain was much distressed, and his face fell. And the Lord said to Cain, Why are you distressed, and why is your face fallen? Surely 
If you do right, there is uplift. But if you do not do right, sin crouches at the door. Its urge is towards you, yet you can be its master. Cain said to his brother Abel, and when they were in the field, Cain set upon his brother, and Abel killed him. The Lord said to Cain, where is your brother Abel? And he said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? Then he said, what have you done? Hark, your brother's blood cries to me from the ground. Therefore, you shall be more cursed than the ground, which opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. If you till the soil, it shall no longer yield its strength to you. You shall become a ceaseless wanderer on the earth. And Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is too great to bear. Since you have banished me this day from the soil, and I must avoid your presence and become a restless wanderer on the earth, anyone who meets me may kill me. And the Lord said to him, I promise if anyone kills Cain, sevenfold vengeance shall be taken upon him. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest anyone who met him should kill him. Cain left the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. And then he founded a city and named the city after his son Enoch. To Enoch was born Irad, and Irad begot Mahujal, and Mahujal begot Methuselah, and Methuselah begot Lamech. And we'll stop there. Um, why are we stopping there in verse 18? Because we have this pattern established where Cain has established himself, and you see the lines of his generation go on. But there's a whole lot of stuff going on in this story, uh, stuff we see playing out today, but also patterns that are established that you see repeated, confirmed, and reinterpreted in the Bible story. And so a big part of this is what is established in verse 2, right? Verse 2 says, um, she then bore his brother Abel, Right, which is Eve, referring back to Eve. And Abel became a keeper of sheep, and Cain became a tiller of the soil. So there's a ton of debate about why was God happy with Abel's sacrifice? Why was um, God upset, or why didn't he take heed of Cain's sacrifice, which he offered, but let's look at their jobs for a second or how their occupations are described. So Abel keeps animals. He's a keeper of animals. He's raised these animals and tended to them and cared for them so he could become profitable. And then, you know, it's described that he gave like the firstling of his flock to the Lord, whereas Cain is described as bringing an offering from the fruit of the soil, but it does not say anything about the first fruits. So there's a lot going on, and there are a couple of patterns of, that are established. So again, when we look at all of this, it's not necessarily a right or wrong answer. It's not um, what is the correct way to read this or not. It's as your understanding grows and as you see more patterns and as you get more experience living a life, this thing changes. However, a couple of things from a literary perspective we can say, um, bearing in mind how these patterns are repeated throughout the Bible story, there are a couple of things that work here, and they're actually established 
in the previous chapter with Adam and Eve and the serpent in that story, which if you want to go back and read through that, this might make a little more sense. However, we will be doing a whole unit on that story and going into that in more detail. But there is something established which could give us an insight. It could give us a little bit of... I guess an opening up of understanding as to why God doesn't like Cain's sacrifice. And the, it's, it's two things. And one is this idea of the first fruits. It says, Cain brought him forth an offering from the ground. That's great. That is awesome. But it says, Abel brought him the firstling, the choicest firstling of his flock, meaning it's not only the first thing he received before he got anything else from his flock and then the second it was the best one in addition to it and this is established throughout the bible story it's it's an offering of the first fruits as we would call it and this is one of the reasons why later when the tithing system is created god wants to you to give the first fruits of your labor meaning he wants you to pay him first before you take for yourself because again god can do more in in the story and the patterns god's saying i can do more with that little bit that you give me up first than you can do with the other percentage of what you keep for yourself in this pattern of trading and giving your first to god is established um so again we look at well, how do Adam and Eve play upon this? Well, we go back to the Garden of Eden story. What happened? Right? They ate from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But why was that bad? Well, back in that story, it says that Eve saw that the tree was desirable because it was a source of wisdom or it was a source of knowledge. So she reaches for the knowledge herself. Adam reaches for the knowledge himself. Instead of seeking God for the knowledge, seeking God for the wisdom. And so the first fruits of their offering or the first fruits of their deeds was not to reach towards God as if God was not going to teach them the wisdom and give them the wisdom. Instead, they tried to gain the first fruits for themselves. And then the consequences fell afterwards. And so there's this pattern that's established in terms of giving the first fruits. The first fruits for Adam and Eve should have been, hey, God, we want wisdom. Teach us that rather than, oh, well, we're going to take for ourselves first so we can get the wisdom and we'll be wise enough um, that we can like hang out with God and better understand God. That way, that's not how it works. That pattern is established in the Adam and Eve story. So we again have this repetition but the repetition is slightly different this is how ancient literature works you see these patterns and they tell more or less a similar story with some slightly different details which allows you to see the thing from a different angle from a different perspective which draws out more meaning again wisdom literature and so there's one angle as to, well, why wouldn't have God accepted Cain's sacrifice? You hear it ripped upon that like his heart wasn't in the right place and all of that. And yes, we can speculate upon that. And those are great questions to consider. But if we're just purely looking at the literary pattern, we do know that this pattern was established 
earlier with Adam and Eve and the serpent. So there's one other thing we want to get out of this in terms of the patterns laid for us in the Bible story. And the other part of this is if you go back to Adam and Eve, Adam and Eve actually were not cursed by God after they ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. What it says is God has cursed the ground for the sake of Adam. And so if the ground is cursed for the sake of Adam, then Cain is a tiller of the soil, meaning he makes a living toiling and he offers something that is considered cursed back to God. And so there's this interplay or this pattern established where there's something in the fact that because God cursed the ground for Adam's sake, Cain probably should have known better. It's suggested, again, we can, we can theorize about whether it was or whether it wasn't, but what we do know from the story is that God cursed the ground after Adam and Eve ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then right after that, we have this image of Cain being a tiller of the soil, offering the fruit of his labor to God, but the fruit of his labor comes from this cursed object. And so it's like offering something that's cursed to the Lord and expecting him to be okay with it. Now, we don't know what other instructions were given. There's a lot of subtext there. But what we do know is this was cursed and Cain's offering it to the Lord. Whereas what we also do know is God says nothing about cursing the livestock that you raise. And so there's a little bit of that going on to address that question. Um. But in terms of their occupations, we have a tiller of the soil and we have someone who's a caretaker of animals. And this pattern gets reestablished in different ways as we move throughout the Bible story. Because what does a caretaker of animals, what can a caretaker of animals do? What's required of a caretaker of animals? They might have to migrate. They might have to move with their flocks and move with their herds. And then they have to pay very special attention to what they do. A tiller of the soil, that's agriculture, right? So in agriculture, once you establish that agricultural pattern in one area, you kind of want to stay on that land or near that land in order to work your fields. So there might be something there going on just in the matter of they're living a lifestyle God never intended them to live. In a sense, they're trying to make a garden when God cast them out of the garden. Okay, so now you're trying to make a garden of Eden for yourself when God was like, like no, I cast Adam and Eve out of the garden for a purpose. Now their lifestyle should look like this and I will bless it. But instead, Cain, whether being taught this by Adam or whether of his own volition is living in a way that wasn't necessarily granted authority by God. So in a way he's reaching for wisdom in a different way, just like his father did before him. And then to address the notion of Eve being cursed, Eve wasn't cursed. It says her pain would be multiplied in childbearing, which doesn't necessarily mean like, Oh, childbirth is painful. It meant your kids 
are going to cause you heartache and heartbreak. And then guess what? You might not be fruitful in your future generations, which is another pattern that is established, which we will look at another time. But look at the heartbreak. Think of it this way. She has two sons um, at that point, and one son kills the other son. Think about how heartbreaking. Think about how painful that would be to rear children. So Cain kills Abel, but slightly before that, Cain is mad because God corrects him. He's like, bro, this, this sacrifice is not acceptable. We explored the different reasons as to why it is. And then God speaks. And notice the literary pattern here. If you're looking in your text, it's um, verse 5 and 6. It changes from prose to poetry. And so this is very important when we have a narrative and it's in prose format and then it changes to a poem. This is to draw our attention. This means these are rules, these are instructions, or this is some divine element invoking or inserting itself into the story. So God speaks in a poem to Cain and says, why are you distressed? Why is your face fallen? Surely if you do right, which is the Hebrew word tov, there is uplift. If you do not do right, which is not tov in Hebrew, sin crouches at the door. Its urge is towards you yet you can be its master. And so when we look at do right or not do right, if you break that down, if you look up those words in the original language, you know, so if you've got your concordance in front of you, look these up. These are the same two words that are used to describe the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so what we have here is a test. What we have here is a choice, just like Adam and Eve had a test, just like Adam and Eve had a choice. One generation earlier, you have a choice to eat from the tree or not eat from the tree. You have a choice to discern between good and evil. And so God says, look, this is what's going on, right? Sin crouches at your door. What does sin crouching at your door it's crouching. What does it sound like? Hmm. What crouches by a door? What lays flat on the ground by a doorstep? Kind of sounds like a serpent, right? Kind of sounds like a snake. So this thing, sin is crouching at your door, a lot like that old serpent a generation earlier. Yet, you can be its master. You can master over this. What, is it, what did it say that the serpent would do? It would bruise your heel Yet you can bruise its head, meaning it might cause you some discomfort. It might cause you some pain, but you can rule over it. God gives him the choice in this moment, and he chooses otherwise. So God comes in later, and it's like, hey, where's your brother? And Cain's like, man, I don't know. And then God says, what have you done? What have you done now if we flip back and we look at genesis 3 verse 13 again relating this all back to adam and eve god says this same thing to eve after they eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in chapter 3 verse 13 and the lord said and the lord god said to the woman what is this that you have done Okay, 
and then there's some blame shifting that happens. And then here in the scene with God and Cain, there's not some blame shifting and God just tells him, hey man, this is how it is going to be. And so God tells him like, hey, if you till the soil, like it's, it's not going to be fruitful for you, bro. So you're, again, and this is a key into that pattern that's established. Who else said the soil was going to be cursed for his sake? Adam, right? So we have this pattern established and now it's repeating a generation later. The ground was cursed for Adam's sake. And now we have for a fact confirmed that God's saying, hey, the, the soil is not going to yield its strength to you. Much like saying the, the ground is cursed for your sake. Just like that was said earlier to his father, Adam. And then he says, now, I want you to like, like you're going to be cast out of this community and you're going to be a wonder upon the earth. Now the question that gets raised is like, that's a really harsh punishment. I thought God was a God of mercy. I thought God was a God of justice. Well, like why would he just cast this dude out? I'm like, Hey, let's break this down for just a second. This dude murders his brother in cold blood over a petty disagreement God does not kill him. God preserves his life. Okay. And then God says, God protects him here. Cause let's look at the context. Let's look at the pattern that is established. And again, you can look at this in when the Israelites are moving throughout the desert, they receive the law from Moses. And in an offense like this, a few generations later, right? It's blood guilt. It's a war guilt. It's, um, like if he were to kill his brother, then he would be up to of being killed by the members of his community. So that pattern continues later on. We don't have that information right now, but if we look at the subtext and the context of his community, if someone found out that he killed his brother, he's not going to be accepted in that community. In fact, somebody may come after him and try to kill him if not his own father, if not his own mother, we don't know this. They're absent from the story at this point, but it is an aspect to consider because these patterns are established later on in the biblical story, which then causes us to come back and look and say, oh, was this the situation with Cain and why he's, God's casting him out? He's casting him out actually is a sign of protection. Right, get out of here, get out of where you're at because you are not safe because of what you have done. Then Cain's like, but oh man, he's like, he's like, I can't bear this punishment. I can't be I can't be exiled from my community and where I've made my living and how I've made my living. I can't do that either. And God even protects him further and says, You know what? I'm going to put a mark upon you that lets everybody know that if they harm you, that I am actually going to curse them. That curse is going to transfer onto you. Um, and so God protects him doubly, one from the members of his own community. And then as he's wandering throughout the earth, finding a new way to do life, which is the wandering means like rely on God and God will protect you. That's the call. That's the one, the protection that God is providing for Cain here. But two, 
it is also the the call. He's like, here, you failed the test that regarded your sacrifice and your brother. You failed the test, but I'm giving you an opportunity to pass the test again. And the test is, well, you do what I'm at. I'm protecting you from your community. I'm protecting you from anyone that would try to kill you. Now the test is, will you go out and wonder and allow me to provide for you, to teach you what it is to be truly human and to teach you what it is to live in union with God? Okay. So God's curse to Cain in this aspect is actually a means of protection. And this establishes a very important pattern that runs throughout the whole Bible. And it it hinges upon the two questions of what is mercy and what is justice. We could also throw in what is wisdom, mercy to God and justice to God and wisdom to God looks very different than it does to the human's perspective and then we see all these tests that will happen to various characters throughout the bible as you read further and so what happens next it's some very very interesting stuff so god tells him hey go wander the earth And he says in verse 15, I promise if anyone kills Cain sevenfold, vengeance shall be taken upon him. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest anyone who met him should kill him. Cain left the presence of the Lord. That is a loaded phrase. But we can't get into that right now, but that's something to, to consider. Write that down for future study. He left the presence of the Lord and he settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Well, wait, I thought he was supposed to wander upon the earth, not settle. That's what God asked him to do. Settle, and I'll protect you. So what happens next? Cain knew his wife. She conceived and bore Enoch which Enoch is a type of Christ figure, which is very interesting. If you start unpacking that, this dude who was cursed and killed his brother gives birth to this guy, Enoch, who actually never dies. (laughs) Um, So anyway, um, Cain knew his wife and she conceived and bore Enoch. And then he founded a city and named the city after his son, Enoch. And then we have, like I talked about in verse 18, They settle, and then they're becoming fruitful in their generations. We have multiple generations of people living in this city, the city of Enoch. However, we get a little glimpse into Cain's character. What was Cain asked by God to do? After he killed his brother, after God showed him mercy and protected him, instead of wandering on the earth and relying on God, what did Cain do? He found a nice piece of land, and he built a city. That's not wandering upon the earth. He built a city. So there's some type of rebelliousness that is alive in Cain at that moment. And if you read this thing out, you know, one of Cain's grandsons becomes this dude Lamech who just wants to murder everybody because he's like, hey, I can murder and God's not going to do anything about it because my grandfather Cain was a murderer and he got off and he built this great city because God is merciful. So I'm going to kill just to kill and God will keep forgiving me. And then 
when um, Peter asked Jesus later in the, in the gospel, hey, how many times should I forgive somebody? And the Lord's like 70 times seven. That actually refers back to the story of Lamech, who's one of the grandsons of Cain. Um, if Cain is avenged sevenfold, he says in 424, then Lamech 77 fold. But the point being is this establishment of a city again is another opportunity for Cain to pass the test, but instead he fails the test. Now he's fruitful in his generations. He builds a city, but that is the work of his own hands. And as we will see later, this kind of increases into madness and into violence, which is the very thing God was trying to prevent, which is why he gave Cain the choice. Like, hey, bro, I'm going to protect you. I'm going to put, put a mark for you. I'm getting you out of your community where other people, other headhunters are looking for you, trying to kill you. And all you got to do is roam the earth and depend upon me and we'll make it happen. And instead, he builds a city. So you see a pattern of failing the tests, making choices that don't align with the will of God, or in this sense, where do we get wisdom, right? The wisdom of Cain was, kill my brother because I'm mad. Let me build a city because I can, rather than rule over sin like God asked me to. Wonder like God asked me to. Because it requires trust rather than the reliance on of your own strength. And so then you see how this plays out. It's the battle between human willpower and the ego. It's the battle between jealousy and humility. It's the battle between the spirit and the ego all going on in this tale of two brothers. Which is the, you know, we, it's, we could call it page two or page three of the Bible, our first set of siblings in the Bible, and this is what results. So a couple of questions that we need to consider or that have been asked um, just to tie all of this together. is one is like from a psychological perspective. How can we connect verse 10, that is your brother's blood screams to me from the ground, God says, to the soil in verse 12, uh, you shall no longer yield its strength to you. So now we're working in archetypes. We're working in different parts of literary criticism here. So um, we want to put ourselves in Cain's shoes here and kind of consider how these circumstances would affect you know, in an application standpoint, how we would view work, life, and reality. So, like, how does my experience of this one thing now affect my experience of, let's say, what I do for a living? So, in this sense, I'm a, I'm a farmer. I'm a real successful farmer, right? But in the midst of doing my work, I kill my brother. Maybe the piece of land where my brother died is the piece of land that yields harvest to me, would I be able to psychologically, from a psychological standpoint, would I be able to go to that thing in good cheer? Would I be able to go to that piece of dirt in good cheer and in good conscience, raise my crops there day in and day out? 
Then let's look at the other angle. This is what I've done for a living forever. I go offer that work to God and God says you can do better. I have other things for you. Psychologically, right? What does that do to a person, right? Verse 12, it shall no longer yield its strength to you. Could your work yield its strength to you if now you have the revelation that, oh, I'm doing this work out of a wrong spirit or I'm doing this work out of a false identity or in this sense, in order for me to do this work, I had to throw people under the bus. I had to hurt someone in order to get ahead. All of these are applications we can make from the story if we want to connect it to a work-life balance or psychologically what could be going on through the head of Cain. And so, again, the pattern that is established is that the wisdom of God is much different than the wisdom of man. And if we try to build it by ourselves, inevitably we are going to be left with something that doesn't quite line up and then the choice presents itself again are we going to choose to do it our own way in our ego in our strength in our willpower or are we going to make the other choice and let our true selves not our fake selves, not our role-playing selves, not some construct we built from our childhood selves as survival mechanisms that now we play out into adulthood for a lot of us. Are we going to allow that true self to emerge and are we going to allow for God to lead us through the process that will allow that true self to emerge? Again, from a psychological standpoint, that is the offer God is making Cain right here, even after he committed murder. So God offered him redemption and he continued to reject that redemption and continued to fall into old patterns and you can see how now we can apply this to ourselves in more of a reader response type of criticism or a reader response lens if we want to look at it that way and so i hope that benefited you i hope that made sense and i hope that opened your eyes or or, or like wetted your whistle so you want to go through and read these stories and see how they all fit together and how they apply to your life as a human to deepen your experience both with the world around you and with the people around you because that is the whole point up next we'll be digging into the story of isaac and ishmael and then Abraham and Sarah's part that they played in that for our next twin story, a.k.a. sibling rivalry. But until next time, peace and blessings to everybody listening.